For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at how Chinese politics evolved in the 20th century from the UA author of The End of Concern. Meet Larry Dane Brimner, an author who writes books about civil rights for young readers. And performance and conversation from Toe Renee Wolf and Catherine Burns, stars of the play Black Pearl Sings. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the 21st century, the People's Republic of China is one of the world's largest economies, second only to the United States. But just 50 years ago, it was a struggling nation shut off from the outside world, a country that few outsiders were able to understand. A group of American academic scholars sought to change that, and their quest is the subject of a book by University of Arizona East Asian Studies professor Fabio Lanza called The End of Concern. AZPM reporter Tony Perkins, who spent four years working as a broadcast journalist in China, spoke to Professor Lanza about his research. Well, Professor Lanza, this book is a true story about a group of academic scholars who wanted to know more about what kind of country China was sort of turning into 50 years ago. Um, What was this group of intellectuals all about and why did they care about China? Well, they care about China in part because they care about U.S. policies in the war, and in particular the Vietnam War was a major agitating factor for intellectuals and students in the U.S. and all over the world. Um, But China, in that particular moment, at a a very specific position in the war, represented itself as an alternative both to U.S. capitalism and Soviet-style socialism. It presented itself as a peaceful country, uh, aimed at stopping imperialism and stopping war of invasions, and it presented itself as an alternative model of um, of economics, uh, education, and also specifically the relationship of intellectuals with workers and with the rest of the country. During the, this specifically happens during the Cultural Revolution, which we now know more about it, but at the time we didn't know much about, and it looked like these amazing experiments uh, trying to change an entire culture, entire revolutionary culture, and the relationship of, if you want, intellectual and manual work. So these are all things that fascinated people around the world and fascinated intellectuals in this particular group of Asian scholars in the U.S. Of course, we're talking about 1968, marked a turning point in how a lot of Americans felt about the war. And how did this drive those concerned scholars toward an interest in what Chairman Mao was doing in China? The, the the two things were related and not and, and unrelated in many ways. But but the, 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 the concern for Vietnam was shared by everybody. The large majority of these people were also China scholars. China was the main interest. And in large part it was the main interest for them, not because of like like in other cases or like today for you know interest for the culture. They were interested in the politics. And Mao sounded like uh, and especially the Mao of the Cultural Revolution, the Mao of the 60s, sounded like this alternative uh, leader and presented a completely alternative vision to the one of, you know, not just to the U.S., but even the Soviet Union. 
uh, and presenting himself as sort of this renewing factor, this this new uh, hope, if you want. Now, in your book, there's a couple of interesting terms. One is the long 60s. Yeah. What's that about? What is the long 60s? The long 60s is an academic term, uh, but not only academic, used to describe a series of um, movements or events or factors and changes that were concentrated in the decade of the 1960s but extended beyond, if you want, from the mid-1950s to the late 1970s. And these are movements and events like the colonization where a bunch of uh, new subjects appear, uh, new subjects that, that have been silenced by colonialism in the previous decades or centuries appear and seems to have a voice, and these are mostly black and brown and Asian subjects. Um, this is one of the great mm, changes that starts in the 1950s but proceeds through the 60s. Uh, another is a massive criticism of the existing political structure and existing political parties, specifically the parties on the left. This happens in the US uh, with you know, the Democratic Party, but in Europe with all the socialist and communist parties. These days, we seem to have a need for more intellectual voices out there. What happened uh, to the concerned scholars and their interests uh, after they went to China? What happens after China, after they go to China in 72, uh, is that they get they feel for a very short period of time that their voices are more powerful because they have been to China, that the first group to go to China before Nixon. Um, and, uh, and, and they feel that they have uh, an expertise and, and, and an authority that they, before they didn't have. What happens, however, a few, a, a few years later, when Mao dies in 76, and there is a turn of China uh, to you know, capitalism again, to put it bluntly, also in 70, in, by the mid-70s, the, the, the Vietnam War is over. Uh, that the, the political climate has changed, and many of them find themselves without an audience. Tony Perkins spoke with University of Arizona professor Fabio Lanza about his book, The End of Concern, Maoist China, Activism, and Asian Studies, published by Duke University Press. The minds of young readers can be curious and voracious, but how does one write for them about the most complex topics in American history, like workers' unions, racism, and the struggle for civil rights? For many, the answer is, it's easier if you don't. But for author Larry Dane Brimner, finding ways to talk to kids about social justice is a necessity. His bibliography covers children's books of all kinds, both fiction and nonfiction, and works aimed at fourth and fifth graders, like Black and White, We Are One, The Story of Bayard Rustin, and Birmingham Sunday, Bremner writes frankly and directly about racism and the inspiring stories of those who unite against it. His latest is 12 Days in May, Freedom Ride, 1961, and I talked with Larry Dane Bremner about what drives his dedication to these subjects. Well, I think a lot of the credit goes to my mom and dad, who were liberal. They were from Birmingham, Alabama, and they told me stories that were just unbelievable for a young kid. And I wanted to do further research to find out how true those stories were, you know. And so that's kind of where they come from. 
Uh, my parents instilled in me a, a, a belief in justice. So this is my contribution to providing some justice where, where there was none previously. And also, I would think that you're shining a light on an area of American history that might be overlooked for younger readers. It's definitely overlooked. And, and there are some states now who have absolutely outlawed any teaching of the civil rights movement. And, you know, I think that's, that's a shame, especially given circumstances that we're facing today. I like focusing on people who've been overlooked in history. And, you know, we, we know about um, John Lewis, but we don't know most of the other characters involved. And so I wanted to give them their, their due time in history. What kind of uh, research do you find yourself doing um, to prepare for a book like this? Are you actually physically spending time in libraries, or is it mostly home on your computer? I visit. I go to Birmingham to look up things there uh, using the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I also look for autobiographies. What I can do online now, which I couldn't do previously, is I can read newspaper clippings from the day. And that's always helpful to give you a take on, on what was happening. And so I'm kind of all over the place with research, and I, I begin my projects by doing a lot of research. And once I've found that door in, then it's usually pretty smooth sailing until my editor gets it. <laughs> and then there are just gobs of revisions that need to be done. Mm-hmm. Larry, when you're writing about the civil rights era for young readers, what do you feel is your responsibility as an author in terms of finding the right language to tell this story and also to deal with the darker aspects, the violence and the racism? I feel a responsibility to tell the truth. And I tend not to hold back, but I don't, I don't write about violence to glorify violence. Um, I, I write about violence to show how difficult the times were and the, the obstacles that uh, protesters faced. That's my primary responsibility. These books are geared for grades four on up, although they are used younger and even into the college level. Um, I do watch language. Um, I will only use the N-word, for example, if it's pertinent to the situation I'm writing about and also if it's in a quote. What kind of feedback do you get from young readers about how they process this kind of history? I think young people, and again, I'm talking about fourth grade on up, the young people I talk to are very sympathetic, and they see this as a bully issue, which of course it was, but it was even more than that. Um, So I think that's what they report to me, is that, you know, why were these these white people, the Ku Klux Klaners, so so violent? Why were they so mean? Why didn't they understand that people are people? When I visit a school, I will tell them, tell the kids that I'm talking to, if I'm talking specifically about this book, um, I mentioned that this happened during my lifetime, and that's one of the reasons I write about it, is because I was a youngster during this time, and I want to find out more. And so that gives them a clue that, well, it wasn't that long ago, you know, if, if the author was alive when, when uh, these things happened. So, yeah, I, I think they are very sympathetic to it. 
I think to a large degree, they don't understand the animosity, the racial animosity that existed in the 60s, the 50s, and and prior to that. Mm. And they give me a great deal of hope that maybe someday things will change. Larry, can you share a way that writing these books has helped you to reappraise the civil rights era and maybe opened your eyes to something that was new? My parents talked about Bull Connor, who was the commissioner of police and fire in Birmingham. They talked about him in evil terms. It was difficult for me to grasp that anybody could actually be that mean, allowing the Ku Klux Klan 15 minutes of you know, mayhem at the bus stations before he allowed the police department to make a presence. And my eyes were open to the fact that that there was a great deal of violence, and it was much more violent than even I could imagine or even my parents could convey to me. I can also add to that that there were so many people that you don't hear about uh, in the black community who were making a stand, who were organizing the communities uh, locally to march, to protest, to ride buses, and you don't usually hear about them. And so it's it's been eye-opening to, to me to be able to find these people and to write about them. You mentioned your next book. Are you still going to be exploring this chapter in American history? For the next book, I'm actually diverting and going to Hollywood to talk about the Hollywood 10. Um, but then the book after that uh, will be about the Scottsboro Boys, which again is Alabama. Larry Dane Brimner is one of hundreds of authors appearing in March at the Tucson Festival of Books. On Sunday, March 11th, he'll read from his newest picture book in the morning, and in the afternoon, he'll take part in a talk on investigative journalism, Voices That Changed History. You can find a complete schedule of events at tucsonfestivalofbooks.org. The work of ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax in the mid-20th century is an important link to understanding the origins and connections of American folk music. Artists like Lead Belly, Muddy Waters, Jelly Roll Morton, and Woody Guthrie were all brought to prominence by Lomax, who traveled the South with recording equipment, seeking to preserve their songs as part of the Library of Congress. In the early 2000s, this groundbreaking journey served as inspiration for playwright Frank Higgins, to create a play for two actresses called Black Pearl Sings. The play tells the story of Susanna, a young, well-educated white woman on the same mission as Alan Lomax, who makes her greatest discovery in the person of Pearl, a black woman in prison who seems to be an embodiment of her people's struggle and spirit. Both women see opportunities in the other, and each has their own agenda. The play opens next week at the Invisible Theater in Tucson, I asked the stars to join me to talk about Black Pearl Sings. My name is Tarane Wolf, and I play Pearl, full name Alberta Johnson, in the play Black Pearl Sings. My name is Catherine Burns, and I play Susanna Mullally, also in the play Black Pearl Sings. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs>
Sometimes I like to ask actors to describe the character they're playing with a, a real economy of words. Give me three adjectives that you think really describe who Pearl is. Tough, tenacious, heartfelt. Mm-hmm. And Catherine? I was going to use the word tenacious, so I would say determined. Uh, she has great integrity and intelligent. What did you first think, Torine, when you were first introduced to the material? Tell us what it was like. Well, Suze approached me about the play. And, and we're talking about Suze Clausen. Suze Clausen, the, the fabulous, artistic director at fabulous, the Invisible Theater. Effervescent Suze. And um, I read the play, and I'm always careful of roles that put me in positions of being the mammy, the nanny, the hooker. For years and years and years, I did roles like that. And it's like, you know, I can I can actually play the secretary. And so I was a little put off by it. But the journey of the play really sold it for me. It's quite a moving story. And Catherine, what about you? What was your reaction? When Susan Clausen first asked me to do the show, um, it's been a very long time since I've done straight acting. I'm more of a singer and a musician. And so... I was drawn very much to the music in the show. And that's initially why I agreed to do the show. And then once we got into the script work and started working it, and I started researching beyond just the boundaries of the script and really immersing myself in what these women that must have existed during that time, women like this, had to go through, it became something that almost paralleled what I was feeling within today's society. And it really helped kind of ground me in a sense of the troubles that I've been feeling as a woman in today's society aren't isolated. And people have gotten through this before and bridged this gap. And it's really something that's helped me kind of work with my emotions in that way. Torine, reflect on what Catherine just said. How does this come into play for you and your character? Well, I think it also talks about the intersectionality that's going on, which we have in terms of looking at the connection between white women and black women, there's been this kind of split when you look at feminism. And so the idea of intersectionality, of that connecting that unless all of us are free, none of us are free. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounds like a cliche, but that's absolutely true. And when you look at the Me Too movement, when you look at Black Lives Matter, when you look at all of these things happening now, this play, the time frame is in the 30s. It is absolutely topical to what's going on. And the idea of, you know, the things that we can celebrate differences. We can find the things that connect us without losing the things that make us who we are, whether they are culturally or spiritually. We can find those places where we can reach out. Mm -hmm. When the play begins, where do we find your character, Torine? What's her situation? I'm in prison. Why are you there? Oh, you have to come and see the play, darling. It's not that easy to explain. (laughs) That's part of the unfolding of the story. And I think it's important to, to take that journey and then find out why she is in prison. As a creative, blending your acting and your singing, Torine, what is an example of an opportunity that this play gives you that you have not previously had? To honor the journey of my ancestors in a different way. The first thing that came to my mind when you said that was I pictured my grandmother. My grandmother died in 1987, and 
Uh, she had a farm in a little place called Matthews outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. I saw the ancestral home. We went and visited her. We would go down several times from New England. I saw the bed that my mother was born in. That house has since burnt down. But we have a saying in my family. My grandmother was the head of the family, and she still is. So the things that she taught us, the things that she bequeathed upon us, how to be, how to be in the world, um, that still resonates. So it was an opportunity to honor that journey. And we're still grappling. We're still grappling with that. You know, we look at what's going on in our country. You know, when folks say, oh, slavery, it was over. Why are you still upset? We are still grappling with all of it. I mean, wasn't it Faulkner who said the past is not even past? I mean, it's a bad paraphrase, but, you know, so it offered that kind of opportunity and that kind of depth to play um, out that journey on a stage. I actually thought about my own grandmother who, when she was growing up, she had to fight for herself as a woman to get a career. And um, I heard stories about all the things she had to do. And when she moved to New York, how she refused a lot of men. And that's why she didn't have a big career as a dancer. But that wasn't the way she wanted to get it. And it was just a very interesting thing to have heard these stories of my grandmother as a young woman and to realize that that's very, very indicative of who Susanna is. She's an, she's an incredibly strong woman trying to find her way in a very male-dominated society, and she wants to do it on her own terms, and she doesn't want to compromise her integrity. She doesn't want to have to go through anybody else to get what she knows she can get on her own. So a last question. Uh, at the end of the night, what do you hope that a member of the audience might take home with them in their heart or their mind from this play? That we're connected and that there are multiple connections that happen. There's the connections of the two characters. There's the connection musically. There's the connection as women. There's the connection across social strata. But then there's a whole nother connection that happens. Mm -hmm. There's a line in the show where Pearl says that's not possible, and Susanna says anything is possible. Mm. And I think that that is another aspect that you could glean from the show is that through hard work, you can surmount impossible odds, and you can, you can make whatever vision you have a reality if you pursue it to the nth degree with everything that you have. And I think that that is a really great message to take from the show. And now we'll hear a scene from Black Pearl Sings. Now, you may know the melody. People in America put different words to it, so it goes like this. Oh, don't you remember Sweet Betsy from Pike? <laughs> That's a song sung by Peckerwoods. Yes, but I have to call them rural, non-traditionally educated Caucasians. Back in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, I met an old woman who learned the song when she was six, but she knew different words to it. See if you can guess where she learned these words. When I was single, I had a plaid shawl. All of the girls were jealous and all, but still I love him. I'll forgive him. I'll go with him wherever he goes. 
Why are you excited about that song? She learned the song on the boat coming from Ireland about the time people were fleeing Ireland because of the potato famine. But she knew a different melody to it, the original Irish melody with the original words. He came up to the farmhouse and whistled me out. The tail of the shirt from his trousers hung out. Ah, but still I love him. I'll forgive him. I'll go with him wherever he goes. He gave me a handkerchief, red, white, and blue, and said, I am leaving. Why don't you come to red, white, and blue? See, he's going to America. Ah, but still I love him. I'll forgive him. I'll go with him wherever he goes. When I was single, I had a plaid shawl. Now that I'm married, I've nothing at all. Ah, but still I love him. I'll forgive him. I'll go with him wherever he goes. See, she goes with him to America, but she's had to sell or barter her shawl for some food. This song, it's a warning. The times will still be hard in America and that people have to stick together. And you get all that from that song. So, Pearl, give me a song with a little more meat on it. Meat? Yeah, pain. You must know something about pain. Yasm, I must. Oh, Lord, and I trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, and I trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my troubles but God. Don't nobody know my troubles but God. Went in the room, didn't stay too long. Looked on the bed, my mother was dead. Oh, Lord, and I trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, and I trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my troubles but God. Don't nobody know my troubles but God. Went in the room, didn't stay too long. Looked on the bed, my child was dead. Oh, Lord, and I'll trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, and I'll trouble so hard. My guests were Toe Renee Wolf and Catherine Burns, the stars of Black Pearl Sings, a play written by Frank Higgins and directed by Susan Clausen. It runs from February 13th through the 25th at the Invisible Theater, located near the corner of First Avenue and Drachman. Tickets for the debut performance on February 13th are available at a discount. You can get complete ticket information at invisibletheater.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.